Hi, welcome to Teach the Word. Um, we're going to do the church part three today, which is <clears throat> looking at metaphors for the church throughout the New Testament and what they are communicating to us about the church. Let's begin by prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask for your uh, strength, your uh, ability to um, hear your word, perceive your word, understand your word. Pray that you would give me the ability to bring out your word, and talk about your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, let's start with uh, the bride analogy. The bride analogy communicates, you know, the, uh, the love that's in the relationship between the church and God. It's a relationship of love. Uh, where do we see the bride relationship or analogy? So, two different places. I only look at John... Chapter 3 to begin with, um, starting in verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and they are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness of me. That I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Uh, the passage goes on, but I think we get the idea there is that... Uh, John is calling Jesus the bridegroom and his disciples the bride. Uh, and later, the disciples become the church. And the analogy is, is further picked up in the New Testament. There's a Genesis 2.24 gets quoted um, in reference to the church in the New Testament epistles a few times. So why don't we start by reading the passage of Genesis 2.24, which is the, uh, the union of first couple, the first marriage, Adam and Eve. And that passage goes, uh, we'll read from 22 down. Uh, so God brought her to the man, and Adam said, this is 23 now, this is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And here's the verse that's quoted. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24. Um, let's look at some of the quotes in relation to the church in the New Testament. We can start in, in 1 Corinthians. I believe it's chapter 6. We want to go to. Yeah. Verses 15 and 17. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So he's talking you. Uh, the you here is, is the you plural, the Corinthian church. He's saying you guys are one flesh with Christ. You're his bride, and he's quoting this marriage 
passage, Genesis 2.24, he quotes it in verse 17 of chapter 6. No, verse uh, 16, sorry. So you get you get it there. Uh, maybe one of the most pronounced places you see the, the, this quoted and uh, the marriage relationship depicted is in Ephesians 5, when Paul is giving instructions about marriage relationships to the Ephesian church about how husbands and wives ought to uh, treat one another. Um, he's, he starts talking about Christ and the church in the, in the middle of that. It's sort of like a, the greater truth of which the smaller truth of husband and wife relationship is sort of a piece or a part. You know, picked, uh, let's read the whole passage and then you'll get the idea. So I'll just start with Verse 22 of Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that he should be holy, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Uh, when you read this passage, you, you start to <clears throat> feel uh, that Paul's really maybe not using this as an analogy between Christ and the church, but he's, he's actually speaking that this is the relationship between Christ and the church. The church is Christ's bride, and that we are his body and his flesh. And he quotes the passage to back it up. So, whether you're understanding it as an analogy or, or a literal fact, um, I I would say you have a precedent biblically to do both. I, certainly, I could see how from Ephesians five here you would take it more literally, um, and from from where we started in uh, John, it's definitely an analogy, right? Anyways, let's go to the end of time, the uh, consummation of the marriage, as it were, the uh, a marriage supper of the Lamb, which comes up in the book of Revelation. Uh, let's see, Revel is that Revelation 19? Maybe, uh, maybe 19, verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying... Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet. But you, you get what's happening here at the end of 
the book of Revelation, depicting the, uh, in a sense, the end of time, is uh, bride, is the church, or the martyrs, they're arrayed in white, and they're prepared for Christ, and Christ is returning as king, and, and there's a uh, feast. Um, Revelation is highly symbolic, so could definitely take it as a metaphor out of this book. But um, further in uh, in chapter twenty one, you see maybe uh, the uh, marriage theme kind of uh, brought out to the fore. Let's say after after the thousand years and after the uh, the rebellion. But anyways, that's one. Uh, New Testament metaphor is the uh, bride, marriage. Bride, church is the bride of Christ. Let's, let's look at another one. Church, the church is the body of Christ. Um, it's, it's kind of important to note that this might just be a subset of the same analogy because um, maybe the church is the uh, body of Christ because of the bride of Christ analogy given the uh, the one flesh, given Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one. So if, if the church becomes the bride, then they become one flesh, then they are, they are the same body. So it could be that uh, that's where this analogy is coming from. But either way, it kind of serves a um, slightly different purpose. Uh, the, uh, the body analogy is kind of, the bride is like communicating love relationship. And the body analogy is kind of communicating a dependency relationship, the, the, the need for for Christ. The, the body analogy is, is like a couple, kind of twofold. There's really, it's, I guess it's really two analogies. One is that Christ is the head, right? See, Christ is the head and the church is the body, right? And that particular, that, that one of the body analogies, uh, communicating the dependence thing. It's not really a love thing, but it's a it's it's as as you understand, we understand as we read it, if we were to lose our head, where are we as the where the rest of our body would be? Well that's how the church is in relation to Christ and their need for Christ. Well, uh, let's look um at some of these uh, body analogies where we have uh, that kind of thing. Um, how about uh, Colossians one 18. Um, this is just speaking of Christ. Starting verse. Let's start back up a little bit. Maybe uh, so back up to 15. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation, providing him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the, the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in all things he may have the preeminence. I think that kind of sums up the purpose of this analogy, is that Christ is preeminent. He's the head. The church is the, uh, the rest of the church is the, uh, the body. We see that several places. If, 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 like, if you just jump down four verses, five verses to verse twenty-four, 
I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is church. Or if uh, you go down to chapter 2 of Colossians, maybe verse 19, or let's go to 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, and the worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up, puffed up by his fleshly mind, not seeing... Uh, and not holding fast the head from whom the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. There's you have Christ the head. Take a little break. Yes, honey? Okay, I'm back. I, I had to get my daughter some more food to eat. So, um, that's one body analogy. So there's two body analogies. Christ is the head and the rest of the body is dependent on him. It's nourished by him. And that communicates the Christ has the preeminence and the dependence relationship. So then the second body analogy for the church in the New Testament is that it's focused on each individual within the church being a piece or a part of the body and interconnectedness. That's the, that's the purpose of this. The second body analogy is that uh, all, all members within the church, I and the next guy and the next guy, are interdependent on one another. We all need each other to function. So that the body is is a bunch of mini-organism organs and pieces and parts that are all dependent on one another to function. We see that body analogy uh, most prominently in, in uh, 1 Corinthians. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians and we'll read uh, chapter 12. For the body is one, I'm in chapter 12, verse 12, it has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact the body is not one member but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if there were all one member, where would be the body? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And on our, on our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Um, so that's interdependence, diversity, unity and diversity. I guess that's the way to, that's what's being communicated by the second, this other body analogy. Um, so now we have the bride analogy, bride of Christ, 
the body of Christ. Um, and now let's go on to the uh, household of God. Um, we see this throughout the New Testament, um, a couple different angles at it. One is the fact that we're all adopted into God's household. It's kind of a legal angle. You see that in Romans. Uh, let's go to Romans 8, 14 through 17. It's talking about our legal adoption into the household of God. Uh, so Romans 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. All right, so there's, there's adoption there in Romans 8. We see um, adoption elsewhere. We see it in uh, Galatians. I believe. Chapter 3. Ish. Yeah. Well, I guess this is making more of uh, less of adoption and more of growing up and children, children in the household of God. Uh, Galatians three twenty three onwards. For before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor. To bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of, his, of, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that, he might receive, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Here's the adoption piece. It's in chapter 4, 4, uh, 5 through 7. That we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. See, that's very similar to what he said in Romans about this. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ Jesus. So, one, at, one of, I guess the household analogy is really... Um, Kind of twofold too, because because there's a the household as in the household relationships with the father and the sons or sons and daughters or other members of the household. The father's the head, the patriarch, right? The father being God and the household members being the church, you and I. Um, that's one. And then there's the there's an analogy of a, of an actual building, a house. Um, 
guess it, we'll, we'll call that though the, the temple uh, analogy, the temple structure. Uh, but what's communicated by a by these household relationships? Um, I think there's obviously love in the father son relationship, the parent child relationships, but um, that's more the aspect that's communicated, I think, by the bride, the marriage relationship analogy. I think a thing that's probably more communicated by the the son uh, relationship is the um, the aspect that uh, you, we, as the church, have a responsibility to carry on the Father's business, the Father's name, God the Father placed us, the church, here on earth, in a sense, as his representatives, as his ambassadors, and we're to carry on his business. Um, just like uh, the children in a household are to grow up and carry on the family name. Well, we're the church are carrying on our father's name, our father's reputation. We're to be about his business. So I think that analogy speaks about the business that the church is to be about as sons of God, the household. Um, where else? Well, I did say there was a hint that there was maybe some verses that talk about household more as a building. Why don't we try to see if, if that actually pans out? I was thinking that a lot of these other references I had written down here, like in Timothy and even in, in uh, Hebrews, were more of that ilk, let's say, but let's, uh, Let's take a look. Uh, let's go to Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3, 15. See what Paul is saying. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. I guess that could be taken either way. could be taken as the household relationships, how to conduct yourself. There's an explicit statement of the analogy the house, that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. That's 1 Timothy 3.15. Um, go flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor and sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee uh, youthful lust and yeah, onward. So, see, this is a, still a household analogy. The church is being described as a great house, but we're not talking about people and people relationships. We're talking about items in the household, items that are honorable, you know, like your fine china for when you have guests over and, you know, your pooper scooper for, you know, cleaning out your bathroom, items for honor and dishonoring. And he's saying, so also in the household of God, in the church. So this is an interesting analogy, right? What's this communicating? It's communicating that uh, the church isn't perfect. There's all kinds of people in the church. Uh, there's all kinds of um, 
God's dealing with everybody where they're at. And he is um, moving them forward. And Paul, what's the point of this analogy? It's an admonition to cleanse ourselves from that which is dishonorable so that we can be useful to the master. I'll read it again. Um, but in a great house, so verse uh, 2 Timothy 2, verse 20. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So this, this household analogy with the items of the household kind of, I think, communicates the idea of everybody's on a journey, a sanctification journey, a journey of becoming holy. And we're at different points in the journey. And that's, that's what's happened. That's what is the truth about the church of God. We, get, we see in this household analogy. So I guess it really, is, it really is fair to say that there are two body analogies and there are two household analogies. One that's talking about people and people relationships. And one that's talking about actual uh, structure, you know, uh, like this one. Uh, what else? Uh, I think that uh, we maybe can move on from household and go to temple. I think that's, that's a good thing. Uh, there are other references. There's a lot of other references for all of these, but, you know, time is is something, and I don't want to make all my videos to be forever, which tends to happen. So let's believe we'll skip all those other references, and we'll go to temple. Where do we see temple? Well, in Matthew 16, verse 18, we see kind of, beginnings of this theme, as far as the New Testament is concerned. Matthew 16, verse 18. This is a conversation between Jesus and Peter. And we're in the middle of the conversation. And Jesus says to Peter, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Why do I bring that in with a temple analogy? Well, just because of the building aspect. A, a building that's being built up. Uh, maybe I could have brought that in with the, uh, the house analogy. Let's, let's trace the theme forward, the idea of stones, rocks, and buildings forward. And we'll see if maybe I'm justified or if I'm not. Um, but let's go to 1 Corinthians 3. So that was Matthew writing. Now we have Paul writing. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building, according to the grace of God, which was given to me. As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, 
and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it was. If anyone's work which she has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so also through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, whose temple you are. I just uh, gotta take care of my daughter real quick. We'll be back. Yes. Okay. Um, gotta wrap things up here. I don't think I'll be able to record much longer. So, in that analogy, you have Paul talking about building, right? About why is building, what you're building on it. And he ends the analogy by saying, the church is a building, you know, there's a foundation laid. Now you're building on the foundation. And he ends it by saying, you're the temple of God. So he's thinking about building and the building as the temple of God. So what does a, this kind of an analogy show us? Well, the focus of, of, of a building analogy seems, I think, to be in Matthew and and here in Corinthians, foundation, right? The foundation of the building. That, that the building needs a sure foundation or a true foundation, which is Christ. And uh, the building needs to be, the, the materials that make up the building need to be sound for the building to not collapse, right? So the foundation's important so it doesn't collapse, but then the materials themselves, the, the building pieces, the stones, the haywoods, whatever it is, they need to be sound. If they're not sound, I guess if they're haywoods double, the building may collapse. If they're stone, they're sound, right? The soundness of the of the materials speaks to the need for holiness in the members of the Church of God. So the foundation needs to be Christ, and the members of the Church need to be holy. Um, let's just flip over to uh, Peter. We'll get one more uh, verse for the temple out of... Uh, there's a lot of temple passages, but um, Peter... And first Peter talks about, I think it's in chapter 2. Let's just flip to first Peter and read kind of a classic passage on this. Um, starting verse 4. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up a spiritual of spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You have not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. So there you got uh, the people of God, which is the church as a people group, a priesthood. There's sort of several people groups, a holy nation, a priesthood, and a physical building with stones all mixed together in one passage. Uh, 1 Peter 2, uh, 4 through 10 is what I read. So we got um, that analogy. What what other analogies do we have for the church? Well, another one is, is as a flock, like sheep, bah, a flock. And uh, the, the point of this analogy is that uh, 
the church is fragile and it needs protection from, from the danger of will, wolves. So the church needs good shepherds, shepherding. The importance of good pastoring, good shepherds who protect the flock from wolves is highlighted by the flock analogy. Where do we see uh, a flock analogy? Well, I guess if we talk, went to John 10, that'd be a kind of like an iconic passage about flocking, flock, the Jesus and his people as, as the flock, and Jesus is the good shepherd. Um, we can read that. John 10. I don't know where we would start, but uh, we just start in verse 1. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life, and that you may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, who is not the shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. And the Father knows me, even if I, even as so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them I must bring, and they will be. They will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. So it goes on, uh, you know, more about sheep, uh, even if you, all the way down, uh, probably well, well, to verse 30, still talking about himself as a shepherd and having sheep, and the sheep hear his voice. But you get the idea. The church has um, one chief shepherd. That's Jesus Christ. We see that in several of the epistles. Peter, uh, Hebrews, you know, the, Jesus is being referred to as the shepherd, the great shepherd. And then there's many under shepherds. Those are the leaders in the church of God who are there to protect and guide them. Uh, uh, Acts 20 is a meeting of the Ephesian elders with, with the Apostle Paul. And what does he, what does he talk to them about? He talks to them about this analogy, their task of shepherding. Let's just read that passage. I think it's like, uh, Acts 20, 28. Let's just go to Acts 20. See where we are at. Um, yeah, 28. Acts 20, 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away many after, uh, men away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch. So this task of uh, 
flock and of shepherding, which we see uh, throughout. It, it, you can trace it through the epistles, but we won't. Uh, we'll stop there. Jesus is the chief shepherd, and there's these under-shepherds who are the leadership of the church to protect. So we see the twofold things in this analogy, the vulnerability of the church of God and the, the need for good shepherding, good leaders, leadership. You can, you can see really clearly the disaster that would follow if there's bad leadership, a wolf getting in and tearing the flock apart. Well, what else? Let's just uh, end with one more analogy, and, and we'll be done with this, this the church part three video, analogies for the church in the New Testament. And that is the, uh, the garden analogy, the church as the garden of the Lord. Where do we see that? What's it, what's it pan out to be? Well, we'll start in John again. We were just in John 10. Let's, let's jump up to John 15. And we can read uh, the beginning of John 15. Jesus talking to his disciples about agricultural things and himself. Verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And you have already, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So that's pretty strong. Without me, you can do nothing, right? But it's true. Uh, so we have there, what, vines. Um, if we flip over, that's John, flip over to Paul in, uh, in Romans, we have uh, trees, uh, which is what, Romans 10, is it? Are we losing my, uh, Romans 11, Romans 11, 17. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief you were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, or the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Lest you be, should be wise in your own opinion. That the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Now there's that bit about the natural olive branches and the wild olive branches. is about the, the nation of Israel and the Gentile nations. It's talking about um, the nation of Israel rejected Christ, as we say, and they're, they're cut out and, and the Gentiles are being grafted in. But the, uh, the branches that are cut out are also going to be grafted in later. But anyways, you get the idea of growth. So uh, agriculture 
kind of uh, communicates different things, I think, than a flock, right? A flock needs care and whatnot, but um, ag the agriculture analogy is kind of highlighting the garden of the Lord kind of thing. It's highlighting a need for really good conditions, right? You need the right kind of soil. You, know, you need water. What is, you know, the watering for the church that the church needs? It's what happens when the church gathers together and meets. It's the uh, preaching and teaching of the word, the fellowshipping with one another, the uh, prayer for one another, ministering to each other with through spiritual gifts. That's the that's the the water. Uh, what's the good soil? It's I think that's our heart, our orientation of ourselves towards God. Uh, but the idea here with with the garden of the Lord is that um, this analogy is that there's there's a lot of attention and care that needs to be given to 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 each other, to to one another, to ourselves and to others. Like you would give attention and care to a plant, you know, to your house plant, so that it doesn't die. Well, the same attention and care you have to give to yourself and to one another in the church. Otherwise, the plants can die because that's, plants are fragile in that way. And they need good soil and they need good water. And so you need good teaching. You need, good, you need fellowshipping. You need proper orientation of the heart towards God. So, could be more about gardening uh, that we could look at, uh, but we won't. We'll stop there, um, and we'll we'll just uh, review what we have looked at in the past, I don't know, 45 minutes here. We've seen uh, several analogies. Uh, the first one we looked at was the uh, bride, right? The marriage, the bride of Christ. And we said, bride of Christ is about our love relationship between God and the church. Then we looked at the body of Christ. And um, those were two analogies, right? One was the head and the, the rest of the body. And we said that kind of communicated preeminence of Christ. And the second body analogy was all the different parts, different members of the church. Said communicated unity and diversity, independence, interdependence. I mean, so that's the second analogy was body. Then the third analogy we moved from from body to household of God. And again, we said there was a couple analogies of household. One was the household relationships where you had sons and father adoption. Um, and we said that that talked about the business the church is to be about, or communicates the business of carrying on the father's business here on earth carrying forward the father, bearing the father's name. Um, and then that second household <clears throat> analogy was more about the physical parts and pieces of the household. And we said that that, that was seemed to be communicating uh, the idea of sanctification, being, making, being the need for holiness and how everybody's at, the church is a, with a wide umbrella and everybody's at a different stage, but we want to be striving towards holiness. So then after we looked at the, so that was bride, two body analogies, two household analogies, then we, went, we looked at the temple analogy, which we said focused on Christ as the, as the, the has to be the center, the, the ground where which we stand, 
and then the need for personal holiness. Otherwise, building collapse. Right? How important personal holiness is, and how important the foundation of Christ is. And then after temple, we moved flock, which we focus on the, the need, the importance of good shepherding. Um, then we moved to a garden, the garden of the Lord. So that's six different kind of analogies all together. And garden of the Lord, the need for um, care, taking care for ourselves and for one another. Good soil, good watering, nourishment. Nourishment, basically, is the garden analogy. So that's enough uh, analogies about the church. Helps it gives us a good idea of how the New Testament, at least taken together with the previous two videos, we get a, hopefully have a really good understanding of how the church is talking about, how the New Testament is talking about the church. So anyways, let's just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to uh, be faithful to you. We want to be your bride, your body, your hands, your feet, your ambassadors. We want to care for one another. We want to do all these things that you're communicating to us that we are and that we ought to do through these various analogies for the church. Um, thank you for your word. We ask for the power of your Holy Spirit in us, through us, to activate your, your truth in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Have a...